The Toyota MR2 sports car. Lexus, the result of our relentless pursuit of perfection. Oh, what a feeling. Toyota. Toyota. Let's go places. All right, Kelsey, we are back. We've got a new look, some new sounds going on in the Toyota Untold podcast. But some things have changed since the last time we were we were talking to everybody. Guess who's back and better than ever? <laughs> <laughs> you and I. Except, except not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of things have changed since, gosh, I don't even know when the last time we recorded a podcast in the office. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we're on the office. Yes. Talking um, to you also, via Zoom. Recently, we had a massive storm here in Texas that no one was prepared for, particularly my apartment, because the pipes in the ceiling burst and uh, flooded my entire apartment. Yeah. So that means that my podcast equipment was also sadly lost. Yes. So I'll be taking um, yeah. over some some narration, some recording for you. Short term, though, because I need you back. I need yes, you back. Yes, of course. I will be back. But for the first couple episodes, it'll be all Tyler all the time. <laughs> but I'm still around. Just, you know, waiting on that, waiting on that podcast equipment to come in so that I can jump back in. That's right. But some exciting new episodes, I have to say, that, yeah. that are coming up. And I think we're taking a little bit of a different approach this time. We've been listening to some feedback that we got on social. We've been looking for new stories, new ways to tell the Toyota story, think more things that people may not know. And we're really excited about what we have coming up. That's right. And that's how we incorporate it, whether it's the new sound, new images that you'll see in social, new people that we're talking to for upcoming episodes of Toyota Untold. I can't wait. I'm personally very excited about it. Have you, have you been surviving during this pandemic, Kelsey? Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was doing good up until the flood. We're <laughs> making it through. Good. Good. I'm glad. I miss human contact. I have to say, I just, you know, I love my family, love my kids, love my husband. He, during the storm, did some great MacGyvering of stuff up in our attic uh, to unfreeze some pipes. Very thankful for that. But I do miss other people and humans and going places. And um, we're coming up on spring break here in Texas. And I literally, that was the last time I traveled was last year's spring break. Yeah, it's crazy that it's it's been a year Mm -hmm. since we started staying home. Yeah. So a lot has happened, but a lot has stayed the same. Has it really been a year? I don't, I don't really know what's going on, but (laughs) we're making it work just like everybody else. Time is nebulous. I don't, yeah, but we're going to make it work. We're going to help people pass the time with new episodes of the Toyota Untold podcast. And I can't wait. And you will be back soon to narrate and be fully involved once you get all that equipment sent your way. Absolutely. Can't wait. All right. Without further ado, this is the MR2 episode of Toyota Untold. It's attainable performance uh, that's still fun to drive where you don't have to have a whole lot of money or spend a whole lot to have uh, an engaging driving experience. And uh, 
I wouldn't say it's for a legend, but it is very much revered. And people, when you say you have an MR2 within Toyota, I was like, oh, is it the SW20 or is it the Turbo? And, and the folks in Japan still get excited about it, even to this day. And I think that there are still very much car enthusiasts working for Toyota that are still into it. And it is very well revered. The MR2, is it legend or is it a cult classic? Is it both? Does it really matter? It's one of the most revered sports cars of its day, blending fun, features, and affordability in really only a way that Toyota can. So what's the cause of fans' love affair with the MR2? For this, we have to go back to the mid-80s, early 90s, where sports cars had sleek angles, and having an X in the title was all the rage. NSX, 300ZX, RX-7, WRX, even Buick put out the Regal GNX. It was everywhere. Side note and fun fact, when I was little, we started a fund where we put all of our pennies, any pennies, you know, nickels we found in a 300ZX jar because we thought we were going to get one. I think we collected like 50 bucks at the end of the day. We did not get it. Every car maker had their exes pitted against the other guy's GTs. So where did the MR2 name come from? We've heard midship runabout, mid-engine roadster, and mid-engine rear-wheel drive. So we talked to Toyota team members Jack Ferguson, Senior Quality Engineer, Accessory Quality Engineering, and Andrew Eliezer, Development Senior Engineer, Accessory Design Engineering, and they helped provide some insight. I do know they they really own the the midship phrasing, like it appears on several of the badges, and uh, you know going forward on floor mats and advertising material. I think the biggest thing is at the time it seems like sports car names. The three letter acronym was great. If you could find a way to weasel an X into it, all the better. Because you look at a lot of the names at the time: WRX, SVX, NSX, uh, RX Seven. You know, there's there's so many examples of sports car needs three-letter acronym or three-character alphanumeric acronym name. So I, I suspect there was probably some leveraging to make some words fit. They were on the acronym train long before they they came up with midship runabout. But I will say the one thing that peeves me more than anything else, though, is when people hyphenate it. There isn't a hyphen in MR2. In Japan, they, they refer to their vehicles uh, by their layout quite, quite often. Uh, so like an FF would be a front engine, front drive. FR would be front engine, rear drive. And MR would be mid-engine, rear drive. So I believe there was there was an intention to, to use that designation so that the common enthusiast would understand that clearly that it's midship and rear drive. So it sounds like the answer is both. Toyota was able to use the badge and branding of midship runabout and keep the three-digit acronym trend of the day, continuing the duality of function and style that we're going to see as an ongoing trend for the MR2. Aside from the name, what makes it different from all the other nimble sports cars of its era? And more importantly, what keeps the love of the MR2 alive all these years later? For me, it was the fact that it, it's mid-engined, but yet it was priced at where it was attainable. You know, there, there's plenty of mid-engined cars out there like Ferraris and you know, even something like an Acura NSX, but the MR2 was at a price point where you know you didn't really have to worry about you know driving it and flogging it uh, you know on the back roads or at the track if something broke on it uh, you know it uh, isn't terribly difficult to maintain uh, yet it was so fun to drive uh, especially with having a mid-engine layout the turn in is so quick 
and uh, under braking, it's uh, it's really outperforms vehicles that have uh, that are front engine. And there are very few other cars out there at that uh, attainable price point where you could have that much fun. And yeah, some of the parts that would be common maintenance parts are are still readily available because they were shared with you know other Toyota vehicles. So you know, I've got the same water pump that a '90s Camry has. Uh, so it, it does, it, it makes it more approachable from a standpoint of the mid-engine layout to be able to get that that level of handling without potentially the maintenance requirements and cost of dealing with uh, some of the European options like Porsche or uh, you know some of the, the more exotic mid-engine cars. Bill Strong, owner of Racing Strong Motorsports, moderator of the MR2 Owners Club, and generally just a globally recognized MR2 expert explains how small mid-engine roadsters like the Fiat X19 and the Pontiac Fiero led to the angular style and low profile that the MR2 would come to adopt. When the first generation MR2 came out in the States was 85 and there really wasn't a lot of competition. There was the Pontiac Fiero and the uh, Bertone or, or uh, Fiat X19. Those were the two major competitors kind of in the same price point. The Fiero had set the world alight because plastic car, uh, it had a, I don't think it had a V6 in it just yet. Not as angular, more rounded, but really nice car at the time. And then Toyota came out with theirs that was just nimble. It, it took everything from both vehicles and just made it, took it to the next level. But when the MR2 came out, you got the Toyota reliability. You have the handling of the car, which was just amazing. The fit and finish was just incredible on the on the Toyotas at that time. And it was just a cooler looking car. They weren't rusting on the lot like some of the older cars did back then because it was just well done. Better interior too. And it was like Toyota thought about it when they designed it. They just didn't put gauges here and there. They actually had gauges you could use. I mean, it told you something about driving the car. For the MR2, it wasn't just style and substance. Value and reliability are two things Toyota had been known for. But in that era, they weren't always a staple in sports cars. I think they were somewhere around $10,000 new. But uh, it was a good buy. And you got a lot with it. You got a decent warranty with it. And you got an engine that pretty much was rock solid. The 4AG was a, 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 a proven engine, been out a long time, with a new 16-valve head plopped onto it. And uh, it was a great little car. You could fit a ton of stuff in the trunks and the frunk, which is the uh, front trunk, of course, if you, if you don't know what a frunk is. And uh, it got great mileage for those that just weren't racers. You know, at the time, a lot of people were buying them. Were Back in the 80s, you'd call it secretary car. But it was a cute little car to have fun with. While not quite a jack-of-all-trades, this car provided the sporty drive and racing handling for enthusiasts, while also covering the reliability and gas mileage for the everyday driver. The MR2 could go from the office to the track really without missing a beat. And that's something that autocrossers really took advantage of. And autocrossing, for those of you that don't know, that's parking lot racing. And then the uh, enthusiasts got it for autocrossing and it just dominated everything it did. Autocrossing is, uh, I like to call it parking lot racing with cones. Pretty much all over the United States, uh, the SCCA or other uh, uh, sanctioning bodies will come in, set up a bunch of cones in a parking lot and it's a timed event. You get three runs for the day, pay a few bucks and get some experience in car control and car handling. It's fun. That's that's how a lot of people got started racing. I'm, I'm one of them. We'll get to more on racing later in the episode because in order to understand the love of racing in MR2, 
We have to talk about the experience of driving an MR2. Jack and Andrew are back to explain. I think having that uh, that mid-engine layout really helps a lot because uh, we're taking uh, a lot of weight off the front axle, and uh, you know the the, the center of uh, the polar moment of inertia, which is kind of the, the center of gravity, is you know within the wheelbase of the vehicle, and so that uh, the the rotation center is is closer to the center of mass, and because of that, you're able to, it's able to pivot really quickly about that center of mass. And, uh, and consequently, you have that agile feeling and quick response. Whereas when you have a front-engine vehicle, uh, that, that all that you have all that weight on the front axle, and uh, you know the vehicle's not necessarily pivoting about that, and so it, it's kind of just plowing through it. Uh, whereas a mid-engine vehicle, it doesn't have that weight up there, and you can really get into the turn more quickly once uh, you turn the wheel. All three generations have you know, really good sight lines and driving positions. Uh, and I remember it, the second gen that, that I had, you know, you, you feel like you're you know, like in an IMSA G, uh, a GTP car or a prototype vehicle because you are so low to the ground, but the sight lines are, are, are really, really low. And so it, you're looking, you know, basically right at the road in front of you. So you really feel connected when you're that low. To springboard from that, really, I think, you know, people who haven't driven them probably, you, know, you can look at it from the outside and kind of you know appreciate that it's low slung but until you're in that driver's seat and actually driving around like it, it struck me at one point when i was driving it i was i was sitting at a stoplight and i looked over and it was a you know it was just a, a nissan altima next to me and i realized that the top of my roof was basically level with the bottom of where their windows started so until you're really in the cockpit it's hard to to appreciate just how how that seating position affects you. For MR2 fans, there's an unanswerable question. One, two, or three. Which generation has your heart? Is it the angular 80 sports car aesthetic of the original, the Italian vibes of the second gen, or the refined, almost German third gen? We asked Jack and Andrew about their favorite. Well, I think Drew and I are probably both going to be a little bit biased towards the second gen. It's absolutely my favorite. I have uh, played with all three of them. I spent some time on track with the the AW11. I've had obviously my SW20 for you know, almost 14 years now, and then I've I've even I've played a little bit with the Spiders, the the ZZW30s, and I've I've entertained a, a thoughts of a project there even recently. But uh, I, I think. From a standpoint of, if you look at the the sales numbers, they don't lie. The AW11 outsold all of the others by a, a fair margin, especially here in North America, which that actually was surprising kind of revelation for me. I guess, like I said, I would have thought that. I guess my personal bias would have would have led me to believe that the the second gen was was the peak. But yeah, if you look at uh, if you look at sales, but uh, the first gen really really knocked it out of the park. I do also have that same bias for the Mark II styling. I, I just think the exterior is just a mini Ferrari, a mini NSX, a gorgeous styling. But uh, I have driven all three generations as well. Uh, for the Mark I, I had a friend in high school that had one as well as a, another colleague. And uh, those were just pure and raw and, and, and basic, but uh, there's uh, it, it definitely had, had its own flavor. And the Mark III was kind of a more back-to-basics approach, too, in trying to get as, as light, light as possible. And all three have their own merits. Uh, but from a styling point of view Mark and, and power point of view, I think uh, Mark II was 
was my favorite. But uh, I do wish Mark II were, uh, had the lightness and agility that the, maybe the Mark I and Mark III's had, though. I would agree there, and I'm glad you mentioned styling, Drew, because one of the things that I, the thoughts that kind of hit me as I was thinking about this was the second gen seems like it has aged the best from a standpoint of the aesthetic. It was just a good blend of being just edgy enough for its time that it it has become kind of kind of timeless in the just the aesthetic shape of it. Definitely a factor that's kept me around on that one. As you can probably tell from the responses, it's not easy to answer that question. You may start describing your favorite gen, but as you reminisce on the entire lineup of the MR2, the elements of every generation start pulling you in different directions. Here's Bill Strong with more. It's kind of cool because there's so many different MR2s. You have the, the first generation, there's two versions of the normally aspirated version. Then you have the supercharged version as well. Then you have the uh, second gen with um, you know the Mark IIs that have uh, a different engine in it, whereas the later 93 got an uprated engine until 95 in the States, and then the rest of the world kept it until 98, and they had different engines in them. It was a different performance. And then, of course, the Spider comes out, the MR2 Spider, and again, that was a totally different look and feel to what uh, Toyota had before. It was more Porsche-like, you know, like the Boxster, um, had that kind of feel to it. A lot of people don't like the headlights, but, you know, I don't care. I just want to drive the thing. It's such a great little car. I've got, a, I've got three of them. One that I can actually drive every day. The other two are in the shop being converted to whatever I want to do this week. Well, the most successful is by sales would be the Mark I MR2. The 85, the Mark A is what they call it. The 1985, 1986 MR2s. 100,000 were sold in 85 and over 100,000 in 86. So they are considered the most popular ever sold. Um, the numbers went down considerably after that. And the Mark II never hit those numbers. And the Mark III never hit them as well. Next to cleaning, perfecting, and of course, driving the MR2, what's the most satisfying activity? Far and wide, the answer is modding. And before I go any further, just a reminder that modifying your vehicle with non-genuine Toyota parts can negatively affect your warranty, safety performance, and street legality. And while some people keep their MR2 strictly stock, others opt for a complete exterior and interior overhaul. And the customization options are almost infinite. A big part of owning an MR2, or any car for that matter, is making it yours. Let's see what Bill, Jack, and Andrew think about the different mods and styling options. I think there's multiple levels. You have the day-to-day, you know, the, the, the guy that keeps it stock, he uh, just drives it, throws tires on it when it needs it, changes the oil. Um, he participates in the community. Then you have the guys that are, you know, the hardcore stock, you know, do not change those lug nuts. Those lug nuts are, you know, original equipment and you can't change the car. It has to stay like it is because these are classic cars. And then you have the guy that first thing he does is get home is change everything by, you know, 20 inch wheels and, or, you know, changes it into a show car, changes it into a street drag car, changes it into a race drag car, even road racing cars, track day cars. There's, there's different levels there. And that's kind of what's cool about the MR2. A lot of folks don't know what it is. They see this car that kind of looks like a Ferrari or, uh, you know, some foreign little sports car. And uh, they think it's kind of cool and it, it does stand out. Mine personally, I, I do have a, a set of side skirts that I'm considering. I have not made the decision yet, but as of this point, every part that's on my car on the, the exterior body is a factory part. They're not necessarily factory North American parts. Mine is 
is at this point basically a clone of a 98 GTS. But yeah, it effectively with just that that small level of updating to me really is is kind of the in my mind the the ideal form for the second gen. I do appreciate the classic look, but there is one body kit that that always caught my eye, and that was the TRD Japan the 2000 GT kit, uh, the wide body kit uh, with, with the wide uh, tires, and I, I just really dig the look, uh, maybe, mainly because it looks more like a you know a, a race car for the street. <laughs> you bring up a great point on wheels. That realistically, I think the right wheels just make the car. And I've I've played that game myself a little bit, and I think you you nailed it with the uh, the TRD the Alumakes, which were a you know, variation on the the work equips. That was my was my first set of uh, first set of wheels that I had on mine that weren't that just weren't the factory wheels. That's where the magic really happens is is a little bit of work for the uh, the ride height and uh, getting the right wheel and tire package on it. So modding takes work, and it's been said that working on an MR2 is a lot like riding a good horse. It'll sometimes give you a lot of pushback, test your capabilities, and sometimes even fight you. But there comes a moment where it relents, and the bond is built. You finally get that alternator changed. It eventually accepts the shiny new downpipe. You and the horse, or in this case the car, achieve a mutual respect. I would absolutely agree with the the comment about the horse, and I, I think I've always called it character. That it just from a, a spec perspective of you know what Toyota's offered. Is it the most extreme sports car we've ever done? Not necessarily, but I, I feel like it does just have the most the, the most character and and soul. And yeah, occasionally it will it will fight you, especially like you said, getting that alternator out. I, I would think for me, just from my most recent endeavors to me the thing that at least for the second gen that's that's where the bulk of my experience lies i have played with the other two as well but the second gen i think in this day and age is starting to get let down by the the efi system so Mm -hmm. it's it was a relatively early you know turbocharged electronic fuel injection system and it's it's starting to show its age. So the the especially the North American spec cars with the the airflow meter, it causes it to run rich. It you know I had an an issue with mine where it became starting it became the next an exercise like a you know a, a carbureted car where I have to give it some pedal to get it to start. Speaking of mods, gearheads always have a friend who knows a friend who spent years swapping out the stock MR2 engine for a V6. But what's one step further than a V6? Bill Strong tells us how his owner's club helped him achieve that next level. I had talked about different engines that you could put in the MR2. One of them was V6s. Guys were already doing it. V8s. Nobody had done it. So we had been discussing it. And part of the process of, of owning a website, you need to get your name out there. So I sent, at the time, Sport Compact Car Magazine, which was a huge magazine in the day. You know, hey, this is my website. This is a club. And this is what we do. And I also said, here's Racing Strong Motorsports. Here's my website. And so he gave, you know, gave a little, the, the magazine gave a little description about the MR2OC, you know, typical club, all the guys talking about cars. Then Racing Strong, we kind of noticed that he had this thing about the V8 MR2. We think he really needs to stop talking about it and actually build it. So now it's like, ugh, I just got challenged out by a magazine. So six months go by and I'm at my local junkyard and or salvage yard. 
we'll call them junkyards, my local salvage yard. And there's a Cadillac, front wheel drive Cadillac sitting right next to an MR2 in the junkyard. I just happen to be at the MR2 and I look over, it's like, huh, those are front wheel drive. Let's see what happens. So I open up the hood, get my measuring tape out. I'm just, that might fit. I mean, it's going to be tight, but it might fit. And it's a North Star V8, which at the time was a pretty darn cool engine. You know, it's multi-valve. So the junk, the salvage yard guy knows me. He's like, take the car home, strip out whatever you need, bring it, then, then I'll come pick it up. I'm like, okay, gave him a few bucks and the rest is kind of history. We, uh, over Thanksgiving in 2002, uh, Buddy came out from West Virginia. We cut the MR2 uh, firewall out that sits behind your, your, your back. And we basically set the car on this North Star drivetrain and the internet went crazy. That was fun. That was really fun. Took about six months. And I'm doing this on a shoestring budget. Just had two, two kids, so no money. Shoestring budget, hacking away everything, you know, with basic hand tools when you should have like machine tools to do this. Um, the internet making fun of me the whole time. But it's one of those things, I don't care. It's I'm having fun doing this learning. After I started that, there were other people that looked at it. And there was a gentleman in New Zealand, Wayne. Wayne, who I'm still friends with, he actually had stuffed a Toyota V8 into the back of his MR2 using a turbo transmission into the Mark I. And then Paul Woods over in the UK was kind of contemplating what he was going to do. And he ended up using an Audi V8 turned north-south using the uh, Audi transaxle. Everything kind of lines up if you cut firewalls away and redo everything. But that's kind of where those ended up. My V8 per the Toyota MR2 magazine was considered the first V8 MR2 for the street. You know, we never really drove it on the street. We drove around the yard because part of the process of building a car is you actually have to know what you're doing on all the parts. That wasn't me. I kind of learn things as I go. I'm not a trained mechanic, but, uh, I just learned by doing, and there was a lot of mistakes I made on that car. I don't think I would have ever driven it on the street because it probably would have killed me. <laughs> just, you know, my welding wasn't very good and just all kinds of things. So, but uh, ultimately it, it was fun and it led to where I'm kind of at today. After all the planning, modding, partying out, testing, fixing, and testing again, it's time to get the MR2 out on the track. But how does a car enthusiast go from driver to racer? All of our guests shared some of their racing experiences through the lens of MR2. In 2000, I went to my first track day and uh, just watched because I wanted to see what exactly it was. And with the uh, SE2001 event, they did a track day at Little Talladega, they call it. It's a little tiny track outside of Talladega, Alabama that you can do track days at. So I, I watched that and because uh, my car was blown up, so I couldn't participate in it. So the next year I went back, I just had a blast. And... After that, street racing was a big deal back then because Fast and Furious was just coming out. We were getting a lot of kids wanting to emulate that, not just kids, but older people as well. So one of the things that uh, uh, my partners with uh, the MR2OC talked about was, why don't we start doing track days sponsored by the MR2OC? Let's get these kids off the street and get them at a track. And it worked. Well, when I first took my MR2 out to the, uh, the track, uh, to a track day out here, uh, it was one of those uh, HPD uh, driver events, and I was paired with a, a driver who was used to racing uh, spec Miatas, uh, Mazda MX-5 Roadsters, and uh, I wasn't familiar with the track, and, uh, but he, he was quite familiar. And, uh, you know, with him by my side, he was telling me where to brake and where to accelerate and turn. And I remember we ended up uh, spinning the car about three times, mainly because he was 
telling me the uh, the braking and accelerating points and, and shift points based on his experience from driving a Miata. But uh, Miata's definitely a, a different has a much different balance. And uh, I learned from day one that you, you need to drive the MR2 differently than you drive other vehicles. You really shouldn't be trail braking too much into the turns. You can turn in sooner and get on the throttle earlier. Uh, but uh, just uh, the things with the, the handling that, uh, you know, maybe uh, people who aren't used to driving a mid-engined uh, vehicle like that uh, aren't used to. And uh, so it actually prepared me to you know try to catch the slide uh, quite a bit uh, sooner. And uh, just... Uh, it, it kept me on my, t- my toes, so I'll never forget that that, that first time uh, <laughs> uh, going for a few spins, uh, quite literally, uh, in the car. There's racing, and then there's racing. 24 Hours of Lemons, that's right, Lemons, not Lemon, is a series of endurance races with one rule. Between car, mods, and parts, you can only spend $500. The race actually holds the Guinness World Record for the most participants in a single race, with 216 cars. The MR2 has always been quite a staple at the Lemons race, taking all conceivable forms, from an MR2 Spider Frankenstein with a Volkswagen Vanagon to a plane-powered MR2 boasting an aircraft engine from the 1930s. If you're not familiar with 24 Hours of Lemons, it's a $500 car. You put a cage in it and go racing. I kind of think of it as, a, and a few people think of it like this, it's a, it's a party where a race program. We got together a bunch of uh, actually moderators from our from our forum, and we called the team Mod Squad Racing. And we just had a blast at our first Lemons race. It was like 100 cars packed on the Carolina Motorsports Park track, and uh, the rest is history. So we just said, forget all the show cars or the street cars. We're going racing. So that's basically what we did. A party it may be, but 24 Hours of Lemons also provides a chance for some of Toyota's engineering teams to flex their mechanical muscles. Jack Ferguson recounts his own experience from the race. We campaigned a couple of cars, one of which was an 85 MR2. I was crew chief on that car uh, and also one of the drivers. Uh, and I'll never forget the experience with that just because if you haven't done wheel-to-wheel racing, especially in an environment where it's it's fairly low buck, and most of the people around you care just as little about their car as you do about yours. It's it's really life-changing. It's some of the most fun I've ever had. And that that car, shout out to uh, the Daimondai 2 team, which is uh, Japanese for big trouble. That, uh, that car ended up going on to become the first mid-engine car ever to win a 24 Hours of Lemons event. The Tale of the Dragon is another car fan mecca frequented by MR2 owners. A stretch of U.S. Highway 129 straddling the Carolina-Tennessee border at the edge of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park, the tail boasts 318 turns over the course of 11 miles. It's isolated on a scenic highway with no intersections. Both Jack Ferguson and Bill Strong shared their stories from the dragon's tail. We used to call this little drive called Strong Stock. Somebody named it that, so I just I just kept it because it sounded cool. Strong Stock would come out. You know, we do little rallies but not time, not for speed. It's just traveling through the countryside and going through the, the small roads and just having fun, nothing dangerous or anything like that. Those are super fun times, the strong stocks. And, and uh, we did the Tale of the Dragon a couple of times. It's like a th- hundred something turns uh, on this road within so many miles. And it's just fun. A lot of people show up for that. Now, those are good times. 
the first time I took it to uh, the tail of the dragon it was a longer round trip than I had been in that car with, with a little bit more turning in anger than the other trips that had had. We were all excited, uh, getting ready the night before, just, you know, checking out everybody's, everybody's cars in a, a friend's garage and somebody notices a, a, a puddle under mine. So I get to digging in and this is probably 9 PM the night before we were planning to leave. And as I pop the hood, I find pinhole leaks sprung in the radiator and it's, it's just spraying coolant being desperate to not cancel the trip. Uh, I attempt heroic 11th hour repairs and I ended up cleaning the spot and ultimately just patched it with JB Weld and decided that would hold. I, I gave it a, a few hours of shakedown the next morning just to make sure I wasn't still losing coolant. And uh, and we went on our merry way the next day. I kept all my coolant until I got back. And then it, that repair, I think, lasted a total of about nine days. But uh, but it did it did still bite me. As we were just getting into the dragon proper uh, i go to downshift from third into second and second's not there then with a little playing around i determined that fourth also isn't there so i'm convinced that i've broken a shifter cable but we still have 11 miles of 300 and some odd turns uh until we get to a realistic pull-off so i hang my head out the window and holler at the friend in front of me he's like no go i don't have second i'm I, i've got first or third so uh get to the end of the run at, at tabcat bridge after some uh, creative shifting i determine at that point I, i'm convinced i've broken the cable so i just resign myself to driving the probably four hours home with only first third and fifth because I determine, I, I find out in the parking lot that I don't have reverse either. Turns out it wasn't the cable, uh, so I drove it all the way home with three gears for almost nothing. There's a, a little clip that retains the end of the shifter cable housing on the transmission, and that clip had fallen out, and that just created enough play in the shifter cable that it wouldn't. It could push, but it couldn't pull. So yeah, that was a that was an interesting interesting trip, and that's the reason I still have four of those clips in my glove box at all times. And the connection with other fans is cross-continent too. Bill Strong helped facilitate this global camaraderie around the MR2 on the forum MR2 Owners Club or MR2OC. When you're moderating or admitting a small forum, it's easy. When you're moderating a forum that has a worldwide reach, it's not so easy. You know, you have the guys in California that can't do certain things because of emissions testing. You've got guys up in the Northeast that want to do things a certain way. And then you guys have the guys in England, which are pretty hardcore group of MR2 owners over there. And they have their way of doing things and trying to get everybody to understand that everybody has a different way of uh, working on their cars, of customizing them, but it's different everywhere you go. So trying to get people to understand that and then getting everybody to work together and kind of helping each other out. The fun side of it is that there's just so many people like yourself out there. It took us a little time to understand because there's no instruction book on how to run a form on the internet. <laughs> it's just a friend of mine, Armando. You remember that part about uh, you know, having to put an engine in a five, you know, in the in the car at a five-star hotel. We were up all night trying to get this thing working. Finally, Armando convinces me this isn't going to be done. And so, I, okay, I mean, we were tired. We we'd been up hard, no sleep whatsoever in easily 36 hours. So. 
he says, let's go to breakfast. So we go to breakfast and, and uh, ends up, you know, I'm talking and I pick up my coffee. I have pocket, I put it down and Armando's face fell down right into his pancakes. He was, he was so tired. <laughs> he just, <blam. laughs> that just, it's just one of those stories that, you know, with, you're out with car friends and just crazy stuff like that happen. You all share stories, sit around at night, just, you know, drink some beers and talk, talk cars. Like anything that truly binds a group of people together, it's the experiences you share and the stories you walk away with that create a real connection. The highs of experiencing racing for the first time and the lows of having to repair a broken clutch on the Dragon Pass, when these things happen with other car fans, it creates an unforgettable bond. The MR2 isn't the only car to breed these experiences, but it's certainly one of the most memorable. Before we close things out, we'd be remiss if we didn't bring up the one thing on every MR2 fan's mind. Will it ever return? If the Supra made a resurgence, it seems possible that this mid-engine beauty might eventually get its own reboot. For now, our lips are sealed. But here's Bill, Jack, and Andrew with their wish list for a 21st century MR2. If you look at the progression of the MR2, lightweight sports car when it first came out with the Mark One, Mark II was a little heavier, uh, more of a GT class car, you know, more refined, uh, still fast, but uh, more refined. And then a Spider came out, which was a uh, not as uh, friendly for traveling because it just didn't have all the storage spaces the other MR2s did. Um, some people were disappointed in the engine. Um, they wanted turbocharged, supercharged V6s, V8s, or whatever. But uh, I think it's a great little car to, to go around and super lightweight. I mean, it's actually lighter than the Mark I. And uh, it's probably one of the best handling MR2s ever. Longer wheelbase. Uh, even though it looks smaller, it's actually a really big car. Um, I parked my uh, Spider next to my Mark IIs, and it's like, wow, that's that's it looks smaller, but it's not. It's actually larger. And it's a safer car. So the newer cars are probably going to be a lot cleaner. You're probably going to have a hybrid setup which I have no issues with hybrids. There seems to be a few people out there that do. If it's going to be a sports car, it's going to be an MR2, and it's going to, it's going to have some sort of hybrid setup because that's kind of the way the world's going. It's going to uh, be nimble, probably pretty lightweight for a hybrid setup, and pretty powerful. I don't think Toyota is going to uh, risk the, uh, the, you know, the history of the MR2 on something that doesn't perform well. But the problem with it is, Companies nowadays have to trademark names. And I know that MR2 is not trademarked yet. Once they trademark it, that's a, that's a go button. It's coming. Toyota just updated the trademark on the, on the Celica. So I, I believe that's the next car to be uh, to pushed out by Toyota, which is great because it's the three sisters, the Supra, Celica, and MR. I, I think they will. Uh, the next generation is going to be really, really interesting, especially with uh, the way that Toyota's moving. I'd like to see an homage to the Mark II, uh, just because I think the, from a, a form point of view, the, the, the basic form of it, uh, the design language was so classic. I'd love to see a modern rendition of, of that same basic uh, form language. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, I am with you, Drew. I, I would lament that the pop-up headlights couldn't stick around. They are among my, my favorite features. And I think there's actually a lot of evidence in you know, the mid-engine options that are out there that could lend to that from a from an aspect of the proportions. You know, even some of the other options like the Tesla Roadster. I do think there's a, a case study to be made there in the kind of the modern mid-engine design language. I think there's evidence out there to what could be. As we wind things down, we have to make a quick plug for an MR2 event. Yes, a real event coming this May. 
The North American MR2 Nationals is happening in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with events spread throughout the weekend at ATS Racing, Texas Motorplex, and Motorsports Ranch. For more information on the meet, search for MR2 Nationals 2021 on Facebook, and we'll have that link for you in the show notes too. And we'll leave you with one last note from Bill Strong to sum it all up. Thank you very much, folks, and uh, drive them. That's all I ask. Just drive the cars. Thanks for listening to Toyota and Hope. This is Tyler. A reminder that modifying your vehicle with non-genuine Toyota parts can negatively affect your warranty, safety performance, and street legality. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and or hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views or opinions of Toyota or Lexus, divisions of Toyota Motor Sales, USA, Inc. Please note that Toyota Motor Sales USA Inc. is not responsible for any errors or the accuracy or timeliness of the content provided. Used with permission, all rights reserved worldwide.